Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Streaming box technology and business rundown. Welcome to the Screen Box Technology and Business Rundown podcast. For this month's podcast, we're going to explore product market fit. In other words, how can you answer the question that all investors ask? How do you know your product fits the market need? Today we're going to talk to Izzy Aspler. Izzy heads a consulting agency that is focused on UX design, market fit analysis, and MVP development strategies. His wide range of experience includes product design, leading design teams, and holding business strategy sessions with stakeholders. Project management is also in his wheelhouse, especially when it involves R&D and designing POCs for feature discovery. He is also a creative person, having run his desktop publishing company since 2002 and doing technical illustrations, storyboard designs, and film animations for startups and SMBs. Today we're going to talk to Izzy about product market fit. In other words, do you have a great digital product idea, but do you know if there's really a product market fit? Izzy, what a great background. Is there anything I missed or you would want to add? No, that's all right, Dave. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for the intro. It's actually quite exciting to be here. Um, looking forward to talking about the subject. It's basically what I talk about all day. Izzy, what is your definition of the product market fit? You basically are finding a good market for a product capable of satisfying said market. But that's like a... It's a very basic definition. It's the most succinct thing I can say, but it's kind of, uh, I don't think it means very much from a definition standpoint. So uh, it basically comes down to, uh, you're trying to find a good market uh, with a product capable of satisfying that market. Um, it, that doesn't really mean very much in, in when it gets down to reality, but it's like in a nutshell, yeah, it, it, it it ends up becoming really a conversation between people who are designing products and people who we believe need those products. That's, I guess, really what it boils down to. Can you describe, like, what's the, um, like, how, like, at a very high level, like, what's the basic product market fit process is like? Uh, so I guess at a very, very high level, you're basically going to go out and you're going to be collecting data. Um, you're going to be having a lot of conversations. Um, it's, it's where you're, uh, you've got your target customers, what you think you're going to, you're going after, but you're also trying to make sure that your value proposition is lining up with that and that, uh, your minimal viable product is really solving. So sometimes people have, um, they, they come in with all sorts of ideas, either they're really married to their idea and they have a product that they already have concrete in their head and they're not really receiving feedback very effectively, or um, they have a great product, but they're really terrible at uh, letting the world know. So it kind of is, it's a t it could go either ways. What do you find is, is the most critical thing to focus on when you start out on the journey of trying to figure out if your product really fits the market? 
Uh, it's a kind of a chicken and egg problem. You're kind of you're getting feedback, and then it's a question of is this feedback valid? Because you're you're not you know if you ask your mother for her opinion, everything is wonderful. She thinks you're the best. Uh, if you ask the wrong person, they may just sit there and think that their job is to tear your idea apart. Um, and on the flip side, um, you know, you could be talking to the exact the right person to get all the right feedback, but maybe you're asking the wrong questions. So, uh, the how do you figure that out? Because you got two loose ends. So that's that's the the trick is uh, you got to be working on both ends at the same time, and you got to be converging on a solution. So there's there is no right answer, at least when you're starting out. What's your opinion about uh, focus groups? Because I see this used heavily in the product market fit discussion. And, uh, you know, uh, from my opinion, it can have some extremely strange results if we just take a look at recent franchises. Uh, yeah, so, Votod, uh, I think that, I mean, it goes back to what I just was saying. So it's like, uh, it's like, uh, there's an idea of like, uh, you know, if you put in if you put in data and the data is garbage, you're going to get results that are garbage. So, again, it becomes a question of like, how could you? Uh, it's like number one is, are you talking to the right uh, cross section? Are you talking to the right market? Because people market fit and uh, market discovery are also two different things. You may um, think your product is meant for one group when in reality the opportunity is in a different group of people, uh, you're not going to be able to pivot if you're talking to one group. You're not going to get that feedback. Um, I do think that um, focus groups, well, the word focus has a good, it's a good indicator that once you've kind of narrowed down, it could be, again, part of the, uh, um, so, yeah, it's a converging action. So, like, uh, if you think about UX design, you have the double diamond approach to doing design work on products, and there's kind of a an information gathering process where you're keeping your your mind open and your eyes open for opportunity, and then you start to converge on some kind of a, a decision. I wouldn't say it's the right decision. There's many different potentially right decisions, but that's when you decide, okay, we're going to focus here. So we're going to talk to this specific group and try and optimize for their needs. So I think that um, when people start throwing around these uh, these solutions as methodologies that solve problems and they're not thinking about the context of where this is going into their um, their pipeline, yeah, you can jump the gun and then you can end up going down the wrong path and spending a lot of time on something that ends up not being fruitful. Like you mentioned that, you know, sometimes the product is meant for some other group instead of the group we are focusing on. So how do you measure it? Like uh, which group are like where the product fits the most? It's like kind of like numbers versus creativity. You got your business people and it's all about the numbers. But obviously um, when you're building products, uh, it's extremely emotional and physically demanding and so I hope that you're coming from it from a creative inspirational standpoint because there's a million different great products out there that haven't been invented yet probably way more than a million there's always seems to be something else that you can deliver so I don't think that thinking like I think the best way to think about it is okay I have something a group of things that I'm very interested in I have some um, skill in this area I don't mind spending 80 hours a week on this when I'm first getting it started and up and running now I'm gonna go and find some fit it's not like uh, so that's kinda I think that's the only way you can deal with it because otherwise um, 
one, it's it's a paralysis not to have some way of of uh, scoping because it's like there's a million questions you can ask. So you have to say, okay, this is what I'm interested in as a entrepreneur. And then on the flip side, um, there's also uh, we're. Um, the other thing I wanted to add, hold on, it's like your folk, yeah, it's um, it's that you have the market. So the second thing is to understand is it's really hard to wrap your mind around what hundreds of millions of people, what size of a market a hundred million people or a billion people are. When you're dealing with digital services and products, you're reaching an entire world of people. So, you know, it's not worth being anxious about who you're, targeting because there's probably enough people out there that need your product it's it's a kind of a, a, a it's hard to imagine but like as long as you're able to reach that group and you're actually solving their problem so ultimately if you get really specific then your market fit challenge is going to be how do i reach those specific people if you have something that's very general then it may be more like how do we make sure that this mvp is focused, you know, and it's not going all over the place. So again, it depends on how you're approaching it and what kind of product you're building. I have a question. So in general, like when, like you were saying, like the way you're approaching the different age groups are like different kind of people for that particular product. Do you think like it's more like advantage for us in this era, at least because we have like uh, internet and we are pretty much using the same platforms, like every single person. Let's say if you are meant to reach out to your product to like 20,000 people are like, you know, 2 million people, like sometimes how you market the product, like you put an advertisement over the Facebook, they ask you like how many people, like, do you see the sponsored ads on Instagram? Like they ask you, like when you pay for them, they ask you how many people you want to reach out to. Let's say you chose 2 million people. So they're going to randomly choose those people for you. Do you think it's advantage and disadvantage for us? So yeah, I, let me break. So I'll break it down. So the first question is, I think you were talking about whether it's a like a good thing or a bad thing, uh, being able to. So I think um, I think it's a good thing. I don't I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's makes it a bit more challenging, but um, it's never been easier to reach your audience. Um, I think the the challenge is not being overwhelmed by all the various different solutions or opportunities that are out there. And it's also very hard to educate yourself on all these different platforms because then it becomes a question of where am I putting all the time and effort? And um, we'll talk a bit about that, but like some of the quantitative things that we can do to kind of quickly uh, try things out and then abandon things if they're not working, not getting fixed on one solution and it not being fruitful. But um, yeah, and then it's like talking about like, yeah, like let's say you're paying for impressions clicks or you've got like an ad campaign and it's being pushed out through social media. Um, it could be extremely effective. Again, going back, it's like, are you going after, is it a big net, lots of fish, and you got a product that generally goes for everybody? Like, I don't know, let's say filters for your pictures. Everyone wants to add Instagram filters to their pictures or, or most people would um, versus I have a specialized software for dentists to manage the x-rays of their patient's teeth. Hmm, probably, you know, well, let's avoid using Instagram for our marketing campaign. Those are really easy edge cases, but uh, it gets way more difficult when we start treading some like interesting water. 
I could I could give you a bunch of examples, but I think you, you I hopefully that gives you a gist. It's just like, uh, but it's like thinking that way will help dealing with the paralysis of having so many options out there. But there's another step, which is doing some of the quantitative stuff, and that really helps a lot because it gives you the feedback to know that you're not wasting time because sometimes you're just like. I'm spending money. I don't know. Is this is this a, a good use of my money? A good use of my time? So you know, Izzy, I, I actually wanted to get some free advice from you because there is this one product that I've been working on for the past year. I've invested a lot of my um, personal earnings into it, and so far I had uh, made. Uh, zero strides in uh, deciding which market it would be a good fit for. It's really not a um, complicated product. It's not a niche product by any means. It's it's just a regular white t-shirt. So in your mind, what would be the ideal next step for me if I wanted to, uh, if I finally finished to come up with a good prototype Mm -hmm. that can be mass produced at a reasonable price, then uh, what do I do next? Um, Okay, so like, I would so some of the questions I would be asking right off the bat is first of all what is the product is it something that's going on the t-shirt are you coming up with a new type of a t-shirt from a fabric standpoint from a cut so where what's the product here uh, well really the product is uh, is a t-shirt itself and it's less about the material more about the fit so the general idea behind uh, this uh, love child of mine is uh, to have a t-shirt that uh, you as a man who is relatively fit you know not too much not too little at uh, around or above 20 percent body fat uh, body fat sorry, you can still wear it and look good so that's the general idea so it, it has a, a really long fit that extends way below the waist so it, it naturally elongates your upper body that's uh, that's the idea. Okay, so yeah, so I think like some people would start, you know. Uh, so one thing I would avoid is starting to ask people what they think of this shirt because uh, you're going to get a lot of mixed. You're going to get a lot of opinions, and <clears throat> again, this kind of rolls back to there's hundreds of millions, potentially billions of people who could buy this. Uh, I'm sure somebody is going to like this shirt. It's going to fit somebody. So uh, to me, it's a straight up, it's like you got to educate people. Like they're, why, it's like basically if I understood the value in it, I think you've already got value. So it's a problem of how do you get people to understand that there's value? So um, it's, and it does, it's, so there's kind of two approaches. Uh, one is like piggybacking, pick back off of what's already out there, which I think you should do anyways. Anything that's free, take it. Um, and the piggyback method would be there's already fitness products aimed at people who want to um, take advantage of being fit. So whether it's from a vanity standpoint or from a comfort standpoint or from a lifestyle, I want to lift in the gym and I want something that's going to breathe and move around. You already have an educated market that understands some of the value there. And then there may be some finer points that you want to get across. So, you know, when it comes to speaking to those groups first of all you should be making sure that wherever you talk about this product you're talking about people that already made that choice to live that way so you should be putting your message out into spaces where people are um, talking about fitness products so 
That's the first place. You have to be communicating with that audience. Um, questions of whether or not when you're ready and things are worked out and you already have um, a good communication package that is effective at educating people and making the a, a succinct message that talks about what the value is, then it's probably time to do some campaigns, some targeted campaigns. But you got to make sure that you have those, you have to have your ducks lined up in a row. And um, again, if you're, if you're, if you have some uncertainty about how good the product is, you know, then maybe it would be warranted to do some focus group stuff. But I, I really advise um, less rumorating, more action. And the problem with the focus group is you may not get any useful feedback. You may just get more questions. So you got to be a little bit careful about getting too many questions. And uh, what I would rather you do is get like churn rate, growth rates, get a sense of, okay, I, I put out a thousand ads. I got this many impressions, you know, okay, can we change some of the copy? What's going to happen if I do a slightly different, uh, if I change the message slightly, rerun it, see what happens. Sorry, that's a very ambiguous uh, answer, but it's like, uh, it, I don't think there are clear answers. I think this is, um, you're doing a lot of things and you're, you're kind of got your hand on the pulse and you're feeling it out. There's no, there's no like one solution fits all. Uh, <laughs> sorry, hopefully that was. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So yeah, yeah, I think I get it. So if I understand you, sort of correctly then the first step would be to put this product out there and just get any kind of feedback from any kind of people um uh, but especially from those people who are already into fitness since it's kind of a sticking point yes but i think that you got to so when you say put the product out there again it's like it's a it's educating those who need to be educated and it's letting those people who already understand the value know that it's there. So that's what, when you're putting it out there, uh, it's having, it's having a conversation ideally where you're getting people to engage and less, uh, just showing up and spamming people saying, here's my product, because that doesn't really tell me very much. So, um, if you can have say a blog, that could be very helpful. If you can have other people that blog about uh, fitness wear, that could be very helpful to try and get onto their blog. So you really want to be having a conversation about it, not just not just advertising it, at least not at the very beginning. I think, Bhutan, the one thing would be to reach out like different um, kind of fit of people like you were mentioning with the different body fat, you know, how the fit <laughs> works for all of them is like, go to the gym because they have different classes. People are doing strength training, people are running and some are doing Zumba. And I think you can just go to any gym and talk to them. Hey, this is a product like I would like, they can, you know, give it a counter and, you know, they can also put some forms or something which are like very simple, you know, have two, three options. How's the fit? How's this? And how's that? They can just simply take it because, you know, no one wants to like read a lot of like, you know, lengthy pamphlets and stuff. So I think when they go out, they go out from the same door so they can just simply ask, hey, could you do it for me? You know, just a feedback for my product. I think that's the best way to reach out because then they are jumping around and, you know, and they're all kind of put of people there. And I feel like that's just, just an idea in my mind. Yeah, Izzy, does that, is your experience with kind of live market survey, how does that compare to, say, virtual surveys? Yes, 
But obviously, physical market survey is uh, a lot of work, and it's it's geolocated, locked in. So you can wherever you can physically be, you can do it. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it costs very little. Um, uh, Botan, wear your product and go to the gym with it on. Um, if you want to be a little bit more uh, cheeky about your your marketing, you could actually print on the shirt something like, you know, how's the fit? Question mark, which is kind of a leading oh, a leading yeah. question nice. um, um, because it's a little bit less weird to approach somebody if it's clear that you're doing some kind of a marketing campaign. If you're just showing up and going up to people while they're lifting, being like, hey, what do you think of my shirt? They may get the wrong idea. But the, uh, uh, the but I think that yes, it, okay, that, that's a kind of like the creative side of it, but yes. Um, but keep in mind, like, that is, it does, that will cost you very little um, upfront cost. It will be very, very costly in terms of your time. So I wouldn't just pour all of your energy into that. Because who knows? Maybe your gym is just not going to be the market that picks up on it. And maybe a gym in Canada or maybe a gym in, in Latin America. So I don't think you should ignore that. There's a lot of online resources where people get together and talk about fitness. And you should definitely be on there as well. Uh, you know... You know, I say just uh, said something that uh, really resonated with me. So you said that uh, while physical market research is a good idea, but it's a lot of work. So as you may or may not uh, have picked up on this, I'm an incredibly lazy person. <laughs> so how can uh, me or or someone else can <laughs> can make this uh, this as little work as possible in the initial stages? First of all, being lazy and being an entrepreneur is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, you should be working smart. That's how I describe it. But uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, obviously there are, so it depends on how much, so it's a trade-off, right? There's physical time, like blood, sweat, capital, and there's money. Um, often there's going to be one or the other. So if you want, you can outsource certain things and pay people. So uh, the simpler the the simpler the action uh, the more pipeline it is the cheaper you can probably get away with uh, there are some caveats um, when it comes to culture you can't necessarily hire somebody in a part of the world where culture is very different and expect them to be able to do certain tasks so there are some caveats but um, you could have people sitting there and crawling through ProductHunt.com and looking for leads and stuff like that, compiling email lists. You can certainly have people, uh, again, caveat, engaging with people online for you. That is probably not going to work for very cheap labor. You're probably going to need to have somebody with some sales experience. Suddenly you're spending a lot of money. I am very reluctant to advise somebody at an early stage in their company to spend a lot of money on marketing. I think that is uh, kind of a crutch. I think that you should be able to get some traction with virtually zero dollars. That's a good learning experience as being an entrepreneur. Being an entrepreneur is also being a salesperson. If you're not willing to do sales, I would not advise you to go into entrepreneurship. It's uh, you will you will lose all your profit to other people if you if you hand sales off to somebody else. You don't want to do that until you're scaling. So there's a certain maturity that you need to reach. But then again, that's why I say like 
it doesn't actually take that much energy to go on forums and talk to people. But I do think that the lazier version of spamming and putting like advertisements on forums, most people don't click on ads. It's it the impression rate is some abysmal number. So, you know, you're going to be there all day posting. It's it's you're it's, so it's a bang for a buck relationship and I honestly, if you really believe that the product is great and it has good value, and I, I say believe because you're going to get a million opinions. So at this point, for a product like yours, you have to believe in it. I think you just need to be like, you, you have to find some angle that you enjoy talking about it, and you have to find people that are interested in having that conversation with. Word of mouth will probably be the first step to your business. And, and then at some point you can start driving traffic back to your website, but you need some kind of track. Like there, there's, you're gonna need a little, you're gonna need a step. And the, the initial step is gonna come from your immediate circle and those and those interactions directly on, on uh, forms and stuff like that. That to be very specific. I think that's how I would approach it. Uh, I have a question, like Botan mentioned that particular product. So just it's a very simple project and um i mean the product and i was thinking like how do you choose the platforms like the virtual platforms like you mentioned um for like this particular product market fit like because you know how do you start like from the bottom because i don't know anything like how to choose like virtually especially because i'm a very physical person so i would actually go to people and talk you know and like are i don't know like use like social platforms but i'm not sure like how the virtual platforms um we can choose and what are available people will think that the problem it probably isn't as much of a problem as you think and the reason why is is that if you're a if you're not a very virtual kind of a socializer chances are as an entrepreneur you're probably not leaning that way anyways it's not your aptitude it's probably not your interest area so if you're you know let's just say Again, I'm just throwing a random example. Let's say you want to be a wedding planner. Chances are you love socializing with people and you go to a lot of networking events. And that's probably where you want to start in your business anyways. But if you were if you were a really a numbers person and you were like a business person and saying I want to sell widget X at a very large volume, you're probably uh, already kind of aware of what these markets look like and you know who's using what platform but if you're if if so but that's the the answer which is is that it shouldn't feel overwhelming it is overwhelming when you start to think about all the platforms out there but it shouldn't be you could sit down and without getting super technical you could google up and say like you know what is the demographic of people who are on instagram you know what kind of people what's their age group and then you could use a little bit of common sense. It's not always that clear. At some point, you're going to get to a degree where you're like, I don't know. And at that point, you have to actually go out and do some numbers. Like you have to go out and try something and figure out what the churn rate is and stuff like that. Because at some point, you're going to be paralyzed. You're going to be like, I don't know. Should I use Instagram? Should I use Facebook? You know what? I don't have an answer for you. We got to run two campaigns not spend too much money, see what happens, and then, hey, look at that, way more engagement on Facebook. Okay, so let's focus there, at least until until you grow to a certain point and you have enough of maturity to start justifying expanding your marketing budget. So it's kind of just like, 
And I think that the biggest problem is is not getting overwhelmed. I think that is number one issue for, especially if it's your first business or something like that, it could feel like, oh my God, where do I start? I think that it's not as hard as long as you are willing to do a little bit of homework and then combine that with a little bit of uh, willing to throw a little bit of money and see, and a little bit of money and see what sticks and what doesn't stick. If you're not willing to do either of those, then you're going to have a really hard time. You're going to have to have an amazing friend circle that is just the perfect network. Otherwise, you're going to really struggle to get things off the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to go back to uh, Botan's uh, t-shirt business. Um, let's say he ha- came up with his t-shirt business and he has a couple of designs and he has his kind of product differentiation that he came up with and he's decided that he wants to make the Amazon of t-shirts and to do that he's going to need, I don't know, a billion dollar investment from VC companies uh, and all he's got is basically a basic product concept. So there are a lot of entrepreneurs who are in the same position. They, they have a product concept, digital product, or a physical product, a website, an e-commerce, and to get started, they're going to need some money, right? And so they're either going to angels or VCs or whatever the mechanism is. They're going to put together a, an investment deck, a business plan, etc. And the key question that investors tend to always have in going through these type of decks is, how do you know that the product that you've thought up has a market and fits the needs of a market? So this is pre-business. This is pre-startup. So let's say that's where Botan is. He's going to create the Amazon of t-shirts. How would he go about using product market fit to answer the question that the potential investors would have? How do you know your product really fits the market and will be successful? Uh, so, Dave, first of all, yeah, great question. Um, everything that I've been saying so far is more from a point of perspective of somebody who wants to be a small business owner. You know, as soon as you're getting venture capital in, you're only a partner. You know, you're, you know, your your evaluation of a company that's worth zero dollars is whatever they decide you're worth. So, and they're buying a part of you. So, just a warning right off the bat that. Uh, they will, and the other warning is is that and, and this will tell this is a part of the answer is that capital investors are looking to return on their investment right so their ROI is fast so they're not looking at like you have a vision of changing the way the way the world works and pay, the way that people wear clothes the inv- capital investor is how could I put as many of these shirts into a Walmart as possible or something like that? Like it's a very different, not necessarily the same headspace. Um, but if you can think about uh, the return on investment, you're basically making a case on return on investment. So uh, obviously if you have sales, you can show some kind of a vector. So a vector is a combination of the rate of sales and the, the, the how much sales are growing by and they can project. So you don't need a ton of sales if you can show them that it's like quadrupling every month. That's probably you could go to them very early and say, look, obviously something I'm doing something right here. Um, um, if you are in a situation where you're not making any sales, then you really need to convince them 
that the MVP is amazing. So you need to have a good business case and you need to have a good, <clears throat> you have to have a good product <clears throat> and they have to, it has to be tangible. So, you know, if you come to them and it's something that is hypothetical and there's no sales, then don't bother. I don't think anyone's going to, your, your valuation is going to be a hundred bucks. They're going to take 50% of your company. Here's $50. Good luck to you. Like it's, you know, and you, you're looking for money, right? You're looking for a sufficient amount of money to bring it to market. So, um, I, yeah, I mean, if you had, I mean, this almost sounds like a Dragon's Den situation. It's like you have the shirt, you show up in front of a bunch of angel investors, you show them the shirt, you make them put on the shirt, and they're like, wow, this is an amazing shirt. Like, I can't imagine how else you'd be able to get investors unless you had sales. So uh, I think I think that to me is a case closed. I can't imagine any other re realistic end, end game. While you are actually choosing a product, like on a very initial stage, uh, would you choose a product like who you like, which you believe in, or would you choose a product like which people are like looking for? You know what I mean? Like, or you know that there is a demand for it, but you don't believe in it that much. You know what I mean? Like, you don't like that certain thing, but people do like it. You know, there is gonna be a big market for it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think. I think it's a bit of more of a, like a ethical question or a kind of a philosophical question, but like, um, you don't need to believe in your product. I think you need to believe in your business or something like that. I don't know if that's much of an answer, but like, you know, I could, I could sell something that I have no need for. Um, but I still need to believe that somebody needs it. Um, otherwise, um, you know, you can do strong armed sales tactics, uh, but I, don't work with people like that. Uh, I, you know, I want to do soft sales. I want to educate people. Um, so like, yeah, like I, I basically, I mean, from, I'm a UX designer as well in training. So to me, uh, you got to talk with people and this is kind of something that should be going on all the time. This is not specific, but you should be talking to people and learning about their pain points. It's just a general statement. You should try and empathizing is understanding people's pain. That is, so it's like, talk to people, understand what they're going through, get a point of perspective that's outside of your own. And then you'll see opportunities will start coming up. And those will probably be the type that are not your own personal pr passion projects. What will happen is, is your passion will become helping people. And then that will broaden your horizon to every product category out there. It's not... One, it's not the right way. That's just one way. The other way is people who love designing stuff and they have a cool idea and they want to bring it to the world. So in that case, you're coming from the exact opposite way. You are evangelicalizing something and you're out there to let everybody know. So, um, yeah, those are two totally different ways of approaching business and they're both totally valid. So I don't know if that answers your question, but like, uh, I don't think, again, it's not a right or wrong. I just wouldn't, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't advise or want people to be going around, uh, selling something that they are really, you know, secretly 
think it's stupid and they think that their customers are dumb and they're trying to take advantage of them. I just don't like that. It's not good, not good energy. I don't want people putting that out in the world. Sadly, it's a reality, but uh, I don't, I haven't worked with somebody like that in a long time. So, well, I, I mean, you get companies that, that develop a business and have a line of products and sometimes their, their attitude is, or their thing is we need a new product. So let's just come up with a product. Now, product market fit I think would work with them in the sense that okay they have a line uh, they have a line of t-shirts that you know are all heavy metal based and they decide they want to go into surf shorts uh, they don't really know the surf market they don't know the short market uh, but they want to have a new product they, they believe very deeply in heavy metal t-shirts but you know they want to have surf shorts because maybe one of their kids you know likes surfing and but they don't know the market so I assume in this situation product market fit would be something very valuable for them because they're, they're trying to enter a, a new market with a new product uh, even though they don't necessarily believe in it because their their heart and their passion is heavy metal t-shirts but they they have a, a desire to grow that business even if it isn't coming from the heart in that sense I, I think that might be a valid viewpoint for doing that correct uh, I would, I would, I'm, I'm not convinced yet. Okay. Maybe, um, I would argue that it's like, uh, you know, companies have assets and you typically want to, uh, leverage what you have and expand in a logical way. So, you know, like the first thing I would be like asking is why surfing shorts? Why not heavy metal shorts? Like where, where did this extra pivot come from? So, I'm not convinced that argument would make sense from even a business standpoint. But, you know, you'd have to make a case. I think that's the first thing. Uh, 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 Botan, what I, I'll let you uh, interject. Or heavy metal surfing shorts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and no, but that's a, that is so spot on because, like, that is exactly, that's a UX, like, insight it's like who's assuming that heavy metal people don't like surfing right it's a it's a that's like a that's like a pre that's people walking around with their own lack of perspective so uh that could be another a good point but i do think that like you should have some kind of relationship with the products that you sell i think it's just really hard i do think that a lot of companies are like we need a product right but i think that the cost of doing it that way is that there's a lot of human cost in that. So it's like kind of like, you know, there's schisms inside of the organization. People may find that they're doing a job they no longer are interested in. So I I would say beware. I mean, you could do it. But I again, I going back to the argument that there's literally millions and millions of products yet to be made that everyone needs. So then it just becomes like a, really a question of why this product? Maybe we should stop and do a little bit of market research take uh, account of our assets and our aptitude and then make a more wise decision in terms of what we're investing in. So I feel like there's a new market strategy people are using instead of telling them why my product is better. They kind of like drawn you, uh, like attract you to that product. Let's say I would, um, like there are a lot of Amazon 
or any platform you just put your shirt up there and the price for the most of the shirts are like $20, $19 or $15 and you put a shirt up there which is like $60, $59.99 they're like oh my god why this is so expensive they're actually gonna click in or by themselves and they're gonna check okay what's the difference why do you feel like this is the people do it I'm sure companies do it same product same quality and just the different prices you know do you think this is something so I'll, I'll I'll talk a little bit about the cognitive science of this this is a little bit on the UX side it's a little bit on more like marketing but like um, so there's a real effect obviously it kind of it's the cheekiness of like how's the fit I think that like do something that's unexpected catches people's attention. It's just a way of doing, it's a way of differentiating from your market. It could be anything from, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a dentist who paints his walls in, um, in, uh, 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 in polka dots, right? You walk in, you're like, whoa, that's interesting. The whole dentistry place is polka dot and all the you know the all the hygienists wear polka dot um you know clothing or something like that that could be differentiating and and people may laugh at that but it could be an extremely effective way of getting people to go to your dentistry um so it's a differentiation effect um look i mean if it works it works you can end up having an incredible margin if you do it and there's no real value underneath it works all the time uh, lifestyle products um uh, it comes with its caveats, which is you have to protect the brand. You can't have it going on sale. You can't water down the market because then there's an exclusivity effect that happens. So beware. You go into that market, understand how that game – you play that game, you play that game. You don't play by the rules, you will fail. So um, – and then you spend a lot of money on your marketing and your image. PR becomes very expensive. So you're not necessarily getting ahead. Uh, the people that make the most money, I think, are the ones that sell like – the ones that make fraction of pennies. It's like the it's the shower curtains for two dollars in a Target that make way more money than most like luxury brand products. So it's a you know numbers usually end up adding up. You know you're not going to be Louis Vuitton, probably. So the but yeah, I mean I think that there is a middle ground, and the middle ground is I'm going to make something that's slightly better than everybody else's thing, slightly nicer cotton, a better fit, you know, and then I am going to charge more because I want people to understand that this isn't crap, excuse my expression, and uh, and it is, that's another effect, which is um, setting the price too low could have an undesirable effect. These things, sometimes this has to be tested out because these are so many hypotheticals. You have to kind of, this is part of market fit, maybe changing the pricing around and seeing what happens. But um, yeah, I think that like uh, justifiable, but keep in mind, it comes with caveats. Everything's string attached. There's no such thing as just raising the price and everything as well. You got to do some branding to justify that. Yeah, something, it's got to be something about the shirt. Otherwise people will click, but they won't buy. At least I don't believe they will. So. Or we need to do market research to see. <laughs> no, of course, yeah. I guess this just occurred to me. So, what is uh, your opinion on manufactured scarcity? Uh, and to give an, give you an example, like uh, Supreme, they they always do like I don't know, we only release ten of these products. It's it's a brick, but it has Supreme written on it, so it must be expensive. So, <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's collectibles. I mean, uh, you know, it's it's not for me. But it's a market uh, talking about like maybe not being passionate about something, but understanding a customer's needs. There are people who want to collect. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, I, I give it to them. I never made that connection. Uh, 
I, I always thought about it as a clothing brand. I never made the connection of uh, collecting. I no, collect Hot Wheels, so I, I know that market. And it is a market, and, and, and the, the value of one is always a perceived value because it's usually older product that was sold for $1.99 30 years ago, and now it's $800 because nobody can find very many of them or there's a need at that moment. So collectible is, is a good market kind of analysis if you want to study artificial pricing and pricing that's based on demand and value. Yeah, collectible markets are really something interesting to study. Uh, Dave, uh, something with Botan as well. Very interesting, turn it on your head. What is luxury brands? You're the collectible, in a sense. So the more expensive, the smaller the amount of people that could buy the product. And so the more exclusive it becomes. So that's why it's so important that it that the, these products only sell to so many people. Supreme would not be worth anything if everyone was wearing it. And so, you you know, and there are people who, ident their identity is somehow tied into exclusivity, class. Um, again, not for me, but there is, I'm not going to sit here as a UX designer and judge that. That is not my job. Um, and if somebody wants to come up with a ex exclusive brand, I will help them make an effective exclusive brand. And the truth is, is that we all are exclusive to something. Like we all like to be belong to our little clubs and stuff like that. So it's in us all. It just, maybe it doesn't get expressed as a logo on our shirt. So I think that's, uh, yeah, if you understand that, I think you can kind of, that's a whole other world of marketing. But yeah, it's a cool, it's a whole, it's a whole conversation. We can do a whole podcast on that. Well, maybe we will. Um, I, I do want to ask another question, a kind of a connecting question. You know, we've been talking mostly about kind of a physical products for sale. Um, but a lot of, you know, you know, there are physical products and now there's digital products. And that's getting expanded even more with things like the metaverse and, you know, uh, all these virtual products that aren't physical, but also even just services that are sold, you know, through uh, internet, uh, SAS products, uh, those type of things. Is there a difference in the way that you go about determining market fit between physical products and digital products? No, in the sense that I think that you there is an analogy. They're, they're both analogous to physical things. So they're like when you talk about SaaS services, uh, a software, there are physical services. Uh, you know, people pick up your car and park it for you, or somebody comes and does your laundry, dry cleaning. So, so in a nutshell, it's a question of convenience and ease of use, um, and does it give me that tingling feeling of feeling special and I'm being taken care of? And I think that you have to make sure that the software is doing that. So we could talk endlessly about how to build UI and UX and doing things like task flows using journey maps and figuring out what that is. Um, but that is, uh, that is like a whole thing. And it is, I think, a direct uh, parallel to the service industry that we experience in the physical world. And same with products, like, <clears throat> so now we see our NFTs. We also 
But this has been around for a long time. Second Life, I don't know if anyone knows what that is. That's around for 15 years. People, it was a virtual world. <coughs> for those who don't know, virtual world, people buy virtual property, people made virtual goods and services, and people actually would pay real money for those things. So Metaverse, sorry guys, this has been around for a while. two decades now. A long time. So it's nothing new. Um, uh, but um, yeah, there is a... There is a group of people who do, um, I guess, they value it. <clears throat> and um, NFTs is kind of the equivalence of like baseball card collecting. Um, oh, that's a whole conversation too, because I have some problems with it. I think that there are some um, technological questions that I have that I've not found answers to. But yes, I think that um, same thing. It's like, you want to charge a lot for a physical digital you want to charge a lot for a physical product control the supply you want to charge a lot for a digital product control the supply um uh you want to charge very little and sell a lot sell shower rods or whatever it is in target streaming music services make a half a cent on a on an impression every time somebody listens right these are these are kind of uh they're kind of related to each other so when building products you can you can look at the real world for inspiration there's a lot there that is going to translate the way we build it is different using agile or building off of like uh bootstrapping off of pre-existing technologies, leveraging stuff that is digital and on the shelf, canned solutions, an incredible opportunity. If you understand the technology out there, you can get ideas up and running like that. Whereas opening up a brick and mortar is way more work, way more uh, capital upfront. There's almost zero capital to start a digital uh, product. So that's exciting. It's an opportunity, but you must be technologically uh, inclined to do that. Or again, you're going to end up giving away all your profit to some developer to do it all for you. So it's a uh, or you, you you need upfront capital. Let's just put it that way. There's all these trades offs. So it depends on your your case. One of the other connections is is uh, since you have experiences UX and UI design. Uh, and, and we obviously are a development company, and Botan is a particularly good developer. The relationship between digital uh, product marketing fit and UX and development, there's a relationship there, right? Because you're basically taking feedback you're getting from your research into does the product fit the market, and you're then having to adjust the, the, the development and adjust the product to take in these, this new data. Can you describe a little bit about how you see the, the most efficient way that that happens or how you would utilize product market fit to adjust the UX and development of a product? So this is a great question. Uh, so. First of all, again, I kind of disagree with the premise of the implied statement. I think that collecting data and refining product happens in the physical world as well. The physical world is waterfall. For all intents and purposes, it's a waterfall because you're building, you're machining, your stamps, your, you know, it's like so much preparation into physically building something and the momentum of getting something physically built, you cannot just be constantly... If you constantly ch change, you're you're going to 
burn money like nobody's business. Um, you know, so you have to plan far ahead and lock things in. So quality control, huge. Testing, huge. On the flip side, in the digital market, it's all about agile development. So you're not really, if you, you'll never make it to market in time if you try to approach it like a waterfall. So, um, and your, your customers will be angry with you because now the expectation is, is that my software gets pushed, updated every single week and is always incrementally improving based on my use. And the other thing is, and this is really interesting about digital products, is they, digital products have such an impact on us that it changes the way that we go about our day. So what we were doing with our phones two or three years ago is very different than what we're doing with them today. And even the way that we touch them is different. Um, a good actual uh, use case is, and this was driving me insane for a long time, is I'm on my phone, and when I'm on Safari on my iPhone, the bar to change the, the home, like uh, when you type in the address, is all the way on the top, and I'm always, my thumb, one-handed, is on the bottom. Apple finally moved the bar to the bottom of the screen, but that was a big paradigm shift. You know, it sounds silly, but moving the address bar to the bottom of the phone, you know, if you had done that too early, then maybe people would have freaked out and they wouldn't have been comfortable with it. So when you're building things in an agile environment using UX testing and research and you're getting your features um, stress test, you're in a position to be able to do those kind of minutia changes incrementally over time. So the product evolves along with the customer base, along with market. So everything is moving in real time. So that can be very overwhelming. And when you're building a digital product, the hardest thing for sure is coming up with an agile framework where you're able to move fast enough, deal with quality control issues, because that's a huge thing, end-to-end -end testing and regression testing, which is a whole other conversation that we could talk about. Uh, and then, um, and then the, the, market, the market fit. So now to talk to the market fit. Sorry, that's just like a whole preamble. So with the market fit to the digital product, um, your rate of agile is only as fast as your rate of updating your market fit. So if you're going to start developing something and you don't have the market research to back it up, you are spending money in a very risky manner and you may even be taking the product in the wrong direction. And this has certainly happened with products, digital products that have made choices and pissed off their user base. So um, beware. And I think that in terms of that, it goes back to is constant conversation. But when you have a digital product, one of the most amazing things about building digital products is, is that you can build into it data collection. So every time somebody clicks, every time somebody interacts with the site, you're getting quantitative data. You are in real time seeing the growth and the churn rate and how long people spend on the page and how far did they scroll down. And so with that minutia, you can make product fit very fit as you go along. It's, there's so much to that subject, but yes, there is a, I mean, that's, I guess those are the, the, and that's the best kind of, and then again, there's a whole waterfall approach, which I guess we're not, it's really beyond the, the, the topic of this podcast, but there's all the interesting things about physical products and how we develop those. Mm -hmm. 
a lot of testing um, for product market fit is asking you know questions about what type of products you would normally use, what are the products that have impacted your life, uh, those type of things. But then there's very specific testing where you're trying to figure out you know the best mechanism for selling the product or marketing the product. That involves a lot of A-B testing. Do you have any insights or any kind of like general A-B testing recommendations or advice that you would have for somebody who's trying to do some product market fit A-B testing? Don't make it too complicated. Uh, you could do it in-house. Uh, if you do outsource it, beware. I've had some horror stories. Um, and um, it's very easy. Two versions of the website or two versions slight different versions of your product and you direct people uh, randomly to both and you got to make sure it's random that's incredibly important because if there's any bias you're going to throw off all your numbers um, and then that's it I mean make very small adjustments a B testing is not for grandiose decision making it's for like should the button be slightly bigger you know like be very careful don't get ahead of yourself it's not going to answer uh, it's not even going to answer a lot of these funneling questions um, it, it, because it's just going to change people's behavior when they're on your website. So uh, that is probably more like serving, card sorting, other kind of stuff would be used for answering those type of questions. Or, or if, you know, Botan really only has the, the manufacturing uh, capability to manufacture uh, one T-shirt. But he wants to know, should he manufacture this design with a white t-shirt or manufacture it with a blue shirt? He could do some A-B testing with that to try to figure out what would be more popular. Is that correct? He could, yes. Um, make sure you have a wide enough market to test that on. Because, again, that's uh, just make sure your data points are get enough data because... Uh, Without enough data, it could be misleading. So, so that's just a, a warning to all. I say this word enough, but uh, <laughs> what I'm hearing is uh, I have no idea how much data is enough data. So what do you mean when you say enough? I know it's it, it's a very uh, it depends kind of question, but like uh, to you, what, what would be... Set a deadline like? for when you're bringing a product to market and set a budget for how much time and energy and money you're willing to try and discover that answer and then respect those and then act and you and that's it like i, I don't think you'll more. ever have no enough data thing. to be 100 percent certain try to collect as much as you can to, and, and and be good with that yeah sorry i was just gonna say that that's uh, what um, google and facebook taught us that no such thing as enough data so sorry man go ahead I have, um, so I was research assistant too. So I think I would, um, instead of like looking at the market, like which color sells the most, I would actually go with the thing like, okay, what color attracts what kind of people? Like psychologically, some colors are just like that. Uh, like, you know what I mean? Like psychologically, some things are, uh, I always feel like there is a uh, very deep relationship between psychology and when it comes to entrepreneurship as well. Because psychologically, some things in subconscious mind we do like, but we just don't know. And I feel like, especially for colors too, like everyone go with white. So I think that's a safe choice.
that's a psychological choice too. I think it also depends on the market because if you are looking at the heavy metal market, uh, it would be black t-shirts that, that sell better than white t-shirts, right? So part of that is the demographic or the target market. But I, I think that your point is valid that you can kind of collect some data from just the known psychological trends of a market but I, I think the product market fit goes a little bit beyond that, right? Uh, because you're trying to really kind of narrow in on what's really going to sell the best or fit the market the best. There's also, uh, uh, from a UX perspective, secondary and primary research. And so we have these things called industry experts. And you're, at some point, it, it comes down to intimacy and experience. And so it's like, you know... How do you, uh, uh, trying to come up with a, a kid-friendly analogy, but like I mean, the best one that comes with, say, what's the difference between pornography and art? Uh, define it. It's impossible, but I think most people could recognize the difference between the two of them. So there's a lot of nuance. And the same thing, it's like you could look at a, uh, at a heavy metal shirt and it's super cheesy and it's off, you know, Oh, why is it off? Like, you know, is the font not big enough? It's like, you know, you just have to talk to some guy who does a lot of goes to a lot of heavy metal concerts. Like, you're 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 barking up the wrong tree. So, uh, being able to uh, that I think comes with a combination of experience. That's experience that helps you there, and also, um, I think honestly, like, the more you expose yourself to the world, the more you'll have an aptitude for knowing when when to pull back and use the people around you and when to be like you know that's too many assumptions let's go and let's go and actually test some of these assumptions out but that's that's an extremely hard fine line to define what what exactly that is all right well izzy thank you so much it has been a wonderful conversation we look forward to uh, talking to you again on a future podcast to explore uh, product market fit or even UX design uh, in the future. For all of our listeners, uh, thank you very much. Uh, we look forward to uh, our next podcast in a month. That's it for this month's Screaming Box Technology and Business Rundown podcast. Uh, we look forward to seeing you all next month. Thank you very much for taking this journey with us. Join us for our next exciting exploration of technology and business in the first week of every month. Please help us by subscribing, liking, and following us on whichever platform you're listening to or watching us on. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please let us know any subjects or topics you would like us to discuss in our next podcast by leaving a message for us in the comment sections or sending us a Twitter DM. Till next month, please stay happy and healthy. <laughs>